you start off growing up with your upbringing you think is normal. You think everyone has a seven-fingered Chilean gardener who lives upstairs and does manic depressive gardening in the middle of the night. You just think that's normal and then you go to school and you realise it's really weird. You are listening to Made of Human, also known as the Mopad, a podcast hosted by Sophie Hagen, who is a Danish comedian. Mopad. Trying to find out how to do life. Mopad. I sometimes forget to say this, but Harriet Brain is the genius who's behind the jingle, right? She's a comedian. Go check her out. Uh, watch her stuff. YouTube, live shows, everything. Harriet Brain. Excellent recommendation from me. This is the Alice Fraser episode. Alice Fraser is wonderful. And I had this strange feeling all the way through the interview, chat all the way through the chat, because you have recommended that I speak to Alice for so long. I think since the podcast began, I've received messages from you, tweets, all of that, saying that I should get Alice on the podcast. And I've always thought, yeah, of course I should, but then I've just never really done it. You know, I've just, I don't know why, there's no excuse, because of course she was, she's great. I just haven't done it. And then throughout the chat with her just now, I was just thinking, oh, they were so right. <laughs> you were so right. Of course I should have had her on years ago. She's perfect especially for this podcast. So you were right. Great. Next time, push harder if I don't listen to you. that's uh, that. I don't mean that. Please don't push harder. <laughs> but um, thank you for the recommendation because you were absolutely right. And I enjoyed the chat very much. It was um, it was very Mopad. Let's not make that an, an adjective. <laughs> so I'll let you listen to our chat. Oh, I just had... God, that's, my nose is now bleeding, but not my insides of the nose, my like a, a, like a weird thing on top of my nose. And I'm doing another interview. Chat, why do I keep calling it an interview? Doing another chat soon. And then I'm gonna have a bleeding upper nose. Anyways, is it called the upper nose? I don't think it is. Right, uh, before that, you listen to the Alice Fraser chat, 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 chat. I'm just really going to say that I am going to go on a tour of the UK. I'm going to be all over the place doing a stand-up and book tour called Bubble Wrap Happy Fat, promoting my new book called Happy Fat, which you can pre-order now on various websites through which you can pre-order books, I guess. Uh, it's going to be part stand-up, part book Q&A, signing, all of that. That's going to happen throughout May, April, June in 2019. I will also be doing two shows in Denmark. That's not going to be the same thing. That's going to be my new show, The Bum Swing. And I'm going to take that to Copenhagen and Aarhus in Denmark. That's going to be the premiere of that show, which will then later be taken to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And then it might be taken on tour. All of that, the tickets, the dates, the info can all be found on sophiehagen.com where you can also and should also sign up for my newsletter through which you will receive gossip and uh, other kind of uh, dates for shows that I'm doing, announcements and stuff like that and just a lot of secrets that I shouldn't tell anyone. You can also on sophiehagen.com buy the filmed versions of my two previous shows, Dead Baby Frog and Shimmer Shatter. Uh, you can buy them for £5 each, and that's also all on my website, sophiehagen.com. 
Then I have a podcast, another podcast called Secret Dinosaur Cult. Don't let that title scare you because it is actually just a really funny podcast that I make with Jody Mitchell. It's a live comedy podcast. It's queer as fuck because it's me and Jody doing it. So it's queer, it's fad, it's feminist, it's good. And less about dinosaurs than you'd think. Maybe less about dinosaurs than you'd want. And maybe a bit more about trauma and feminist politics. Who knows? Give it a listen and come to some of the live shows. All of that you can find information on on secretdinosaurcult.com where you can listen to it and find tickets and stuff. Now, I'm going to let you listen to this chat that I had with the wonderful, you were right, Alice Fraser. So would you like to start by telling people who you are, for the people who might not know who you are? Yes, I'm Alice Fraser. I am, I guess, a comedian. I tend to, uh, a podcaster, I do, I write, I come from Australia, I live in London. I just had my birthday yesterday. Happy birthday. Thank you. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's quite fun with you because you're one of the people that a lot of my listeners have asked for persistently for quite a while. And I've always been like, yeah, of course. And then I think in my head, I think I've always thought you lived in Australia. I don't think I really... <laughs> and we've not really hung out that much. No, we've not, not that really much. Met Even though often. we're both friends with Larry Dean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he's not really a gatherer of people. No, he's an interesting person. <laughs> he wants people to himself and I respect that. Uh, yeah, so I'm really, but I also, I've shamefully never seen any of your shows. I've just heard great things, ah, which is, you know, those people I'm in the I'm a wonderland yeah. of opportunity waiting for you. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I find that is often the case with people, that you'll have a sense of who they are, but you won't have seen their work, and then you see their work, and you're like, oh, that's a completely different thing from what I thought. I'm excited. I will see it. Um, what you were just mentioning before we turned this on about the trilogy. Yes. So talk about that. So that's kind of my big thing. So that's, that was, I wrote this show called Savage when my mom was dying. Uh, and it was, I wanted, to, I'll, I'll tell you the whole story long form and you can just tell me if I'm going on for too long. Not so I wanted to write a really silly show, a fun, silly, lighthearted show. And then uh, my mom, who had had MS my whole life, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I found it impossible to write the silly ridiculous you know I was brought up on Monty Python and the goon show and that like I I Mm. liked silliness but I couldn't write that so and you know it was all very intense and I I I ended up bumping into a guy on the way to the hospital who said something to me that made me so angry that I wrote this whole show and that's what turned out to be savage and then during the course of doing that very you know I was a very new comedian and I took it round to the festivals and was, you know, felt very strange about it because people were like, oh, we know that kind of show, that's a dead mum show, that kind of dismissive yeah. thing that people would say. So then I wrote The Resistance uh, as a kind of an answer to that, the idea that it was such a personal story but it was a personal story that everyone can relate to. Everyone has a mother figure in their life and everyone has a relationship like that with someone. So I wanted to write a story about something that was emotionally impactful to prove that I could write emotionally impactful stuff that wasn't something that everyone could relate to so I wrote up about my super weird upbringing and then by then I knew it was going to be a trilogy and then I recorded it as one three-hour show in Melbourne wow and I put it out as a podcast I wanted it to be free um I you know obviously I charge for my work often but in this instance I wanted anyone to be able to have access to it at whatever you know 
if they have access to a phone, they can they can listen to it. And I wanted to record it as a three-hour show because I thought that would be interesting. Yeah. I hadn't heard anyone doing that before, like not just three, not just a trilogy, but as one long, long show. I wanted to see if that could work. And uh, it did sort of in that I hadn't really rehearsed very much. So towards the end of it, it started to break down a bit. But that again meant that I had to do a lot of editing to bring it together. So it's a it's a really interesting piece. And there's like a, um, this is like super nerdy, but there's a, a binaural microphone in the audience. So it's a 360 degree surround sound experience. Wow. Uh, so when you're listening to it in over ear headphones, you can hear the people around you <gasps> laughing. And I think in that way, sometimes audio stand-up is better than uh, filmed stand-up because yeah. filmed is quite flat. Yeah. And and sitting with it in your ears in that way, feeling, you know, there's some weird laughers in the audience, as there always are, but you can hear where they are. Wow. And I, I, I wanted to do that. So that's out and it's uh, got some really nice um, feedback and, and I feel very proud of that. And now I'm just facing down what to do next. Wow. So you did three shows and they all... So what was the third show? Did you mention what the that was The third show was called Empire and yeah. was about something that happened at a family funeral. Um, well, my father is a, a very strict Buddhist. He's a very upright man. He's very proper, very patriarchal, very benevolent, very calm, and that can rub people up the wrong way. My dad isn't always very nice. Mm. He can be very judgmental. He's not mean but he just doesn't do that kind of thing where you pretend things are okay the pleasing thing yeah, yeah. he doesn't please other people and um he looked after my mum and us when we were growing up sort of incredibly well like my mum got very sick and it was very hard and he just it was never even a question you know it was never uh, I didn't even think it was an option that he would leave or even be anything less than 100% present so at this funeral, a member of my mum's family said something quite cruel to him, said that he wasn't really part of the family, he wasn't welcome in the family. Jeez. And that was the end of that arc for me of, yeah. of this process of how I thought the world was and then yeah. realising how the world really was and the things that I'd always thought were important, which is to be nice and make the people around you comfortable. I had this real kind of shock to the system of going, actually, that's not what is important. What's important is being there more. Anyway, so I'm not articulating it very well, but there no, are I've... three hours in which I articulate it quite yeah. well. So. <laughs> we'll get that in this one. <laughs> so your upbringing, it already, even from the small stuff you've said now, that already sounds really interesting. Yeah. So what was the core of like the the differences between that and whatever, there's no real, uh, what do you call it, normal, like normal childhood. Yeah. So my, my grandmother was a Holocaust survivor wow. and uh, she came out to Australia on pretty dodgy papers and um, ended up doing a, a bunch of different jobs. She married a man um, and then he died after she'd had three children. When my dad was five, my dad was the eldest. So she brought up these three children and she was this very strange woman. She was very silly she was very, like, glamorous in this kind of extravagant way that was outrageous to the suburban Sydney mothers who she knew. Uh, and she also collected strays, stray dogs, stray people. Oh. So I, I talk about how it wasn't unusual for us to be driving down in King's Cross and Granny to gesture a sex worker into the car and take her home for a lasagna. 
and I grew up in this house that was this falling down, it was an old converted boarding house, but she would just let people live there for extremely nominal rent or in exchange for gardening or whatever. She gathered all these very damaged people and I grew up in that house with all of these extremely strange people and it was a falling down house and a lot of wildlife and you know, when I say wildlife, I mean cockroaches and mice and things because we were Buddhists. We didn't kill anything. Oh, wow. Although my granny would sometimes sneak in and lay cockroach traps and there would be great conflict about that. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I grew up with all these strange people and you start off growing up with your upbringing, you think it's normal. You think everyone has, you know, an, a seven-fingered Chilean gardener who lives upstairs and does manic-depressive gardening in the middle of the night. You don't. You just think that's normal and then you go to school and you realise it's really weird and then it wasn't until I was obviously in my late teens, early 20s, that I found out the stories behind these people, that they all had these, you know, obviously deeply traumatic backstories. Um, so I thought that was a, a story. It was an int- it's an interesting story in itself, but it's also something that I don't think many people have experience of. Mm. And uh, So how do you... So... Your dad has this thing that's not like most people. I don't want to call your dad strange, but you know, and I relate to that because my mother was also not a people pleaser. <laughs> like, not at all. My mom, the last time I went home, she was like, um, she's recently been uh, diagnosed, so she does have a thing, and now we can finally put a word to it. But she was like, yeah, I went to this, uh, my, my co-workers told me to come to this pub, and I came to this pub, and they were all hugging me and just kissing me on the cheek and buying me drinks and telling me how much they'd missed me. It was disgusting. <laughs> it's like, you know that you know that's not normal. <laughs> you know you can't say that. That's that's amazing. So I think what I wanted to say was your dad has well, I can kinda of feel like I can kinda of relate to that. And um then you have your grandmother who's unfortunately no one's like that. I know that a lot of people are like that. So where do you place yourself in terms of do you feel like you are well, this is kind of the story of the trilogy is where I am in that because I was a, in many ways a people pleaser. One of the things of growing up with a sick parent is that you try to make everybody around you as comfortable as possible. It's your default mode is to skate past conflict or avoid it or if it's something that you can process within yourself, you definitely don't put it on somebody else. But then the, the story of the resistance really was that my granny had this courage and there's obviously funny jokes because she's a she's a she's a product of her times, or she was a product of her times. So she would speak in a very unPC way, a way that nowadays would be seen as inc- incredibly unacceptable. But she would help people. So she would say, "You can't trust the Greeks." But if she met a Greek person, it was like the, there were two different things mm-hmm. going on in her head. She had this idea of the Greeks as a as a mass of people, but every individual she treated as a person, and that. It was a particularly um, sort of outrage period of time when I was writing that show. There were a lot of outrages about things that comedians had said or hadn't said, and I was thinking, okay, this is good. I mean, it's good that people are being more careful about what they're saying, but how much of it is being backed up by action? How much of it is people letting off some sort of, particularly with social media, letting off a vent? They feel an injustice and then they vent it onto this platform and they feel relieved of their outrage or discontent, but it's not actually translating into action, or it's translating into action in a really oblique way, slowly changing opinions, but not necessarily helping that person on the street in front of you now. 
and so that I, th- I think that was the thing that was concerning me. I saw a, a lady in the street and she was choking uh, her son and he would have been maybe four or five and she was outraged, furious, and she had a number of other children. She was clearly stressed out. And I, it was the middle of the city and it was mostly businessmen walking around, so I wasn't sure how much it was a gendered unwillingness to interfere in a woman's sphere and how much of it was just people not wanting to touch it with a 10-foot pole. And that was the moment where I kind of crystallised this this sense of I need to be the person who makes trouble here in this, you know. And obviously we all have these moments that come up and go away, but this was a really obvious one where I have to cause trouble and I, you know, tapped her on the shoulder and said, I beg your pardon. And she turned around and said, you don't know me. You can't judge me. I'm not a bad person. Right? And so I thought, yeah. well, I mean, what is that? What is that to say? Yeah, that's really interesting. What does that mean, I'm not a bad person? What does it mean, I'm a good person? Because in this instance, in this moment, you are doing proper evil. Yeah. And and I, I, it sort of just, it, it all sort of crystallised in that show of, of my, I don't have answers in my shows, I just talk about questions, but that, I felt this sense of of losing touch with the mainstream, or when I say mainstream, I'm talking about my lefty, arty people of just saying, but would you help this woman and not just stop her from choking her child but actually help her, you know, get her the resources she needs to make sure that this doesn't happen again? Or is it just that moment of interfering for a second and walking away or is it just seeing it and tweeting about it? Like, well, there's so many different ways to um, act or not act. You seem like a person who do things. I I try. I try, but almost because I don't naturally. Yeah. In that way of, you know, if you know you're disorganised, you end up making charts and things. I, I feel like my natural reaction is to stand back from the world a bit. Yeah. So I kind of push myself into... Is that part of having been... Uh, um, raised to be a police and not raised to be a policer, but yeah. having been in an environment where you had to, you know, just wait, wait for things to happen before you could. Yes, to a certain degree, about keeping keeping the peace, keeping things comfortable, uh, filling in gaps. If mum didn't do something that needed to be done, and then it wasn't done, then there would be trouble. Because she, not not even because dad would want it to be done but that she would feel inadequate so it was sort of not just propping people up but making them it was manipulative basically kind of a defensive manipulation of people making sure that everyone felt like everything was okay and then you also have the buddhism feeding into that which is that if you are upset or angry that's for you to deal with that's something that you ought to process so it makes you quite an internal person um, so I, I think stand-up for me is a way of forcing myself not to constantly be in my own head. And it's also using, obviously, these manipulative tools that I'm very good with, you know? So how does it feel, then, having it all out there? Because you feel it's per- these personal shows. This is yeah. actually, like, inner, like, re- real honesty and real vulnerability. How do you? F- how does it feel to have that, create that, tell it to people, and then put it out there? And now you're sitting back, having done that, and it's all out there for people to listen to. I mean, I think in some ways it's very, 
it's very that, and in other ways, it's the opposite of that. For 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 um, I'm I'm I'm, I'm obsessed with narrative, the idea of of stories and structure. The structure tells the story in itself. So where you put information in a line is itself a piece of information. If something's at the beginning, you know that it's set up. If you, you know, if a person walks in a quarter of the way into the narrative, you know that he's the hero. Various things like that. Um, so I, I was really interested with Savage to tell the story with as little information as possible. So I don't talk about, you know, mum's illness uh, except in one, I mention something, but I don't say what it, how it manifested. I don't talk about incidents of her struggle or behaviour or her body or any of those things. I try and I, I think of it as taking this very razor thin slice of reality and and hoping that the audience and they do they come and they they fill it in with their own understanding of the world, and so in that way I sort of protected myself from that feeling of being incredibly exposed, which I was in many ways incredibly exposed, kind of on an emotional level. So by withholding certain things, that makes you feel like you have control over it. And even just by articulating certain things, you feel like you have control over these really overwhelming, like, life and death and your helplessness in the face of those things. Um, so for me, I think that's what that is. It's, it's having control over it, 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 putting out the things of the, the parts of the story that I want to tell and withholding the bits that I don't want to tell um, is the thing that makes me feel not completely like I'm having a nervous breakdown on stage it's like it's very clearly art for me it's 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 about the the structure and the technique and the jokes and the rhythm and where all of those things fall in a line that it is a, a constructed thing it's a built thing and it's the truth but it is it's an artistic truth oh uh, it's i find it so fascinating because it it feels to me like you're very calm person who's been able to take a deep breath and go right this is what I'm gonna do this is exactly what I'm gonna put into it and then I have all my trauma and everything else over here and is that the Buddhism or is because <laughs> I feel like when I do I, I blabber out with it like I go on stage and I tell people everything holding nothing back and it's not till after a year of therapy I'm like I feel like maybe I shouldn't have said everything on stage just now yeah is I, that is that a I don't think I am a very calm person no necessarily I think it's sort of I think I feel things very incoherently I'm not very articulate in myself about what I'm feeling at any given time often my motivations are opaque to me I will realize that I've done something to prove something in response to something someone said two years ago mm. and that, that I was secretly very secretly from myself very angry about that for the whole time so uh, I think that in part because it is also kind of incoherent and messy uh, and contradictory on the inside, then I, the only way I have control over that is by taking it out and laying it out in words and giving it structure. I mean, if I were to go on stage and, as you say, blabber, it would literally be just a scream. Like it would be an hour of just like one long scream. Um, so it wouldn't be funny or very interesting or comedy, I don't think. You talked about um, 
realizing that your family isn't normal mm. or this isn't what everyone experiences. Did you have the same experience with your mother's illness? Did you think that was the norm until you met? That was an interesting thing. Uh, so when I was young, she was diagnosed before we were born, um, me and my twin brother, um, and we were probably, we knew she was tired when we were young. She had naps and she didn't like loud noises. She couldn't handle it when we screamed or winched. We'd have to go outside. That was just... So we were very well-behaved children and we, I don't think we really realised that anything was wrong until she had a big attack when we were about 10 and then Dad sat us down and told us the deal. And that age you sort of think, oh, yeah, I'm old enough to take responsibility. The kids in Narnia had a kingdom at this age, you know. Like, it, it makes sense to you that you're a grown-up then, even though you're not. Um, and I think at that point I became quite secretive with my friends at school. I went to an all-girls high school. There was a lot of bullying and I wouldn't tell anybody about what was going on at home. That was very much a... The bullying was that? At high school. You were being bullied? Yes. Oh. Yeah. Uh, you know, I wasn't a bully, I don't think. No, we could have been like in the... Oh, you yeah. saw it happen. Oh, no, no, yeah. To... No, I was, I was, I was, um, I was an odd kid. Um, I'm still an odd grown-up. I feel lucky in a way that... There was a point in high school where I thought, oh, yeah, I could do this. I could crawl my way into one of these groups. But I had too much pride, definitely, as a kid. I had way too much pride. So I was an outsider. And it wasn't fun. But then a lot of the things that made me an outsider then are things that I'm proud of now. So. Yeah, I was about to say, do you, do, you, do you really mean that? Do you really mean you had too much pride? Or yes. do you now look back and... Is that a part of you that's like, yeah, you know what, fuck them? I mean... I, Oh, see, I, I don't know. I think I did have too much pride. I think I understand. I think I, I made things, I allowed things to be harder for me than they needed to be. I could have yeah. made it easier if I had been a little bit more conciliatory at that time. I was, I was very, simultaneously very proud and I couldn't keep my mouth shut in class. If I had the answer, I'd say it, which is not the politics of high school at all. <laughs> um and I was, you know, I was brought up in this very strict Buddhist upbringing and it was a very small sect of, of Burmese Buddhism. So I grew up in in this, you know, any as anyone who has this kind of, it's not quite religious, but there was religious elements to it because anyone that gets together in a group like that, religious elements emerge because people are people. I felt like I was right think that was a result of this kind of religious-esque upbringing if I was judging somebody else for what they were doing so I'll, I'm speaking in broad generalities here's a here's an example so my mum was sick and girls were doing something silly like getting drunk at science camp in year seven or eight and I would say this is a ridiculous thing to do why would you do this because in my head priorities were obvious you know you why would you want to do anything that would make your parents upset? What's the point of that? Their life is hard enough already. And from their perspective, I'm this prissy little judgmental jerk ruining their fun, you know. I can totally understand where they were coming from. Yeah. And that was, you know, uh, eventually I learned to keep my mouth shut more, but I also didn't want to be part of 
yeah, I've, I've, what they were doing. Either. I very much did the same thing. Uh, we don't need drugs. We don't need <laughs> alcohol to have fun. We have books and stuff. And they were just, I, I, had, I was very proud of being, I very much had the opinion that if they didn't want to hang out with me, then they were flawed. Like, why wouldn't you want to hang out with me? So I'll just be on my own. I don't need anyone. That's and they, pretty they amazing. Very, but I, I, I kind of also get the, the thought of, I mean, you could have just been less difficult, you know. Mm. You, you would you would have had such a nice social time if you just didn't... Didn't make you know. it hard for yourself. Yeah. Well, I also had the fact of having a twin brother at home. So I did have somebody and he had good friends and he had quite a, a good experience of high school. So I did know what it could be like. Um, I, I just thought, I think, by the end of it, I thought I was an unpleasant person to be around. You know how you oh, meet people yeah. sometimes who put the hair up on the back of your neck? I think I, I came out of high school thinking that I was that person, the, okay. just a creepy, unpleasant person. And it wasn't until university that I was like, oh, yeah, I'm really cool. Wow. <laughs> how did that? Well, how did you get out of that uh, mindset? Um, a boy called Andrew Garrick. Um, was at a party and we were never even close friends after this but I will always remember it it was a a university party a week party and everyone was around and people were chatting and it it the party the official party ended and he turned to me and went you should come along we're going to this pub and I went oh no I'm gonna head home and he said no you seem like an interesting person and I thought they don't know, <laughs> like yeah. none of them know. And I will always remember Andrew Garrick. Um, I don't know what he's doing now. He's living in Melbourne or something. Uh, but that changed my life. You have a lot of moments, and I love this. You have a lot of, and that was the moment when. <laughs> well, it never is, though. I mean, everything no, I is always Sometimes a, it is, though. Yeah. Do you, do you have, is, oh, that's such a, I don't even know how to even ask that but is that a because I love I love moments but I feel like that's very much also a narrative thing yes like if you are obsessed with narrative yes I am you do like the moment when (gasps) everything occurs to them the this is the point of no return or this is the moment when the hero do you think that's part of it I think it is part of it I think it's also that you can tell the same story six different ways and it'll be a slightly different moment in that way, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, depending on what story you're telling, um, but in the, I think, I think when it comes to moments like that, I, fo- I tend to focus on acts, like things like that. He didn't need to do that. That was a moment of kindness, and I'm sure it was very thoughtless of him. And you know, it wasn't like we suddenly became friends. And I mean, there's no story there where he's my best mate forever. Or he saved my life, or you know, I wasn't. In a moment of tragedy, I wasn't. There have been times in my life where I've been, you know, on literally crying on the floor next to a bed and thinking I could lie and cry on the bed, but I need to be on the floor because that's the position. You know, that kind of, those are more obvious moments. But this was one of those ones where it was such a fleeting and passing thing, but it actually did change my life. And I think it's worthwhile noticing when those things happen. And, you know, it's a, it's a reason why I will sometimes make an effort to be nice to someone even if I'm not in the mood because I know how much that did for me. You've, I've heard you talk a bit in various clips on the internet about um, death, 
So yes. obviously you must have you must have a different relationship to death than most people who didn't well have your upbringing. Mm. And I that's both because you know of your mother's illness but also is a part of that to do with your grandmother's uh, history. How much have you did yes. you know about that? And how much did you because what she escaped is kind of a yeah, well, Terrifying she was. Uh, she and her half brother were the only members of that entire family who survived, uh, and she didn't talk about the war a lot. But we grew up knowing about it. Uh, her sister, um, her older sister, because my granny was quite young when the war began, but her older sister had married a judge, and when the Arrow Kreutzer and the Nazis, the fascists in Hungary. Um, demanded that he do it he divorced her gave her up and sent her to the camps equally she had an experience she had a number of experiences but in the war where people who she should have been able to trust betrayed her or people who were complete strangers to her saved her life at the risk of their own lives and I grew up with those stories I think knowing that life is very risky, very short, and that one of the only things, I mean, luck is a thing, but also looking, being being careful, being smart, being clever, protecting yourself, protecting the people around you, I think that is wired in. I mean, I'm really interested, there's, do you know about epigenetics? No. Super interesting stuff. Yeah. So epigenetics is the idea that you, in your lifetime, switch certain elements of your genetic structure that and that's then passed on so it's like sub-evolutionary evolution you can learn lessons within a few generations through your blood oh wow! so uh you see that quite clearly um with holocaust survivors the grandchildren of holocaust survivors are more likely to have eating or anxiety disorders uh, because of their and and the children, particularly the sons of Vietnam veterans, are I think seventy percent more likely to commit suicide than anyone else in their demographic. Wow! So it is even if they've been adopted out, even if it's not, it's not just the experience of having a father yeah. who's been traumatized in this way. There's something that happens on a genetic level. Wow! Um, and that's the theory, at least, and there seems to be quite good evidence for it. Uh, that these these things are passed down. Whoa. You see it in things like birds, um, where uh, migration paths get passed down in the blood, as it were. It's cool. It's wow, that's really that's really cool. Yeah. So I'm I'm interested in that, and I don't know how much of these were my feelings about death and 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 life um, were things that were passed down explicitly, and how many of them are these kind of lessons in the blood wow what does buddhism say about it is that and this is such an uneducated question reincarnation ah, is that buddhism okay. so okay I mean, this is very much like i was seven and i learned about this at school that's all i know yeah well okay so i'll give you my understanding so from my very specific esoteric uh, burmese buddhist slash westernized uh thing it's quite a, an academic branch of Buddhism and the understanding is there is no self. The three core understandings of Buddhism are uh, Anissa, Dukkha and Anatta, which is to say change. The only constant is change. Everything changes, uh, which means that uh, suffering, it also means there's no self. So 
uh, if there is no self, the idea of reincarnation becomes a much more um, academic one. It's it's more of an idea of like a Newtonian physics sense that that there is no end to the processes that mm. are happening. So it's more more like a, a stream of electricity than it is a personality. Oh. That that your actions have consequences and that all of those things carry on without end. But that that isn't strikingly more so when you die than in your life, except that there's no sense of continued identity. Yes. So it, it is much more of a kind of a metaphysical idea of reincarnation than the you know, step on a cockroach, you're born as a cockroach kind of thing. So you have, like, historically speaking, Buddhism is a, a, an Indian religion and it has these similarities, particularly with the ideas of reincarnation with things like Hinduism. So it's difficult to identify how much of it is um, kind of uh, of its time and of the general understandings of the metaphysics of the universe and how much of it is the teaching of the Buddha that was distinct from anything else that had been happening at the time. But the teachings of the Buddha very clearly identify this non-self element, the idea being that if you – sorry, I didn't realise this is going to be a lecture – but the idea that if you pay enough attention and you are focused enough on your own mind and processes, you realise that there's nothing in there that is a fixed point. It's all moving, it's all changing. All of your thoughts, all of your feelings, all of the cells in your body are – being renewed and there is only a continuation there isn't a a solid center so that's like the fundamental teaching of of buddhist meditation yeah that if you realize that truly you will become untethered from the idea of self the idea of you will disintegrate you will just be reality and do you use do you believe this is that still your Believe? Or has it been your belief? Uh, I was brought up believing that. From how um, young? From when I was born. Because what I'm thinking, from what I have learned about trauma, if you're a child of, uh, if you have a f childhood environment mm. that um, that brings you to be one of these children who are a pleaser or a caregiver, mm. which a lot of people are, that even if it's an illness or if it's uh, addiction, uh, parents who are addicted to alcohol or whatever, or if it's a narcissistic parent, uh, you will end up uh, not really caring about yourself mm. and you will kind of l lose interest in what is yourself and what it's is your... It's almost like the e philosophy and the pathology join hands. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking, because if you were already brought up with, oh, no, there is no self, I mean, the, I, don't, I don't really know what I'm saying, but there must be like an interesting... There is an interesting intersection with that. I would say I, I think my understanding of the world is still very much shaped by Buddhism. I don't meditate as much as I feel I ought. Um, and belief doesn't really come into it. it Buddhism, I mean, more pro you have, in the same way with as with Juda Judaism, you have a number of different definitions of what Buddhism is. You have a kind of a, a belief-oriented one, which to me seems weird I, I i imagine it's something like a an orthodox jew seeing someone who doesn't keep kosher calling themselves jewish you think well really are you um 
it's it's either you're meditating on or you're not and in that way it isn't religious it's more practical it's like when i'm i used to do athletics training the more you train the better you get at running unless you get injured but if you that's the thing and i feel that way more about buddhism i, I or buddhist meditation specifically i see it as a as a practice that is worthwhile pursuing but not necessarily I hope my dad doesn't hear this. Not necessarily that much more worthwhile doing than, for example, athletics training. Yeah. Where the 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 practice leads to these outcomes. And if you are a Buddhist, I guess the religious element of it is that you believe those outcomes are the worthiest outcomes. And I'm at a point now where sometimes I believe that and sometimes I don't. Because there is no... <laughs> self and everything is fluid so that makes sense <laughs> of course you're never just one um, yeah well I'm never it. sure is what I am I'm never I'm never certain and I, I don't know if I'm a Buddhist but I do meditate sometimes <laughs> <laughs> and what does Buddhism so growing up with that and because you have so many interesting feelings oh thoughts or you have uh, said so many interesting things about death that I've heard you say mm. was Buddhism part of preparing you for like the end of mortality? Mm. I don't know. I know that for mum, meditating helped her deal with the MS. Um, it's a ne degenerative neurological condition. Um, so the idea of change being constant and normal, as well as kind of focus exercise, um, helped her deal with that kind of accelerated disintegration of not only her body but her mind I think that was useful for her um and I think it helped dad as well I think having a rigid belief structure helped my dad hold it together um yeah I think it was probably part and parcel of the whole way that I grew up but I can't unpick it exactly It's it's funny that I'm I'm super reluctant to call myself a Buddhist or a comedian or anything. I read this really interesting Paul Graham uh, essay. I'll send it to you. Um, called "Holding Your Identity Loosely." Wow. So, uh, which I think is sort of an interesting thing, in, given the discourse of the of the moment, which is very identity focused and drawing attention to where identity is kind of inescapable or super relevant. But the idea is where you can talking about things that you believe or do rather than things that you are. Mm. So feminism, for example, I could say, I could say I am a feminist, but am I being a feminist right now? Not really. I mean, I'm a woman, I'm talking, I'm acting like my opinions, but that, that sort of becomes, that becomes a kind of a, a more refined question. But the idea is if I have feminist ideas and someone attacks those ideas, I can meet them on that level. I can go, okay, that's interesting. Let me see what points you have that are valid and where I disagree with you and we can have a, a civilized conversation and keep it keep it um, useful. Whereas if some if I say I am a feminist and someone says feminists are X or I don't like that or I don't like feminism, they're saying I don't like you. And it becomes this deeply personal attack it becomes defending yourself rather than being able to address something as a set of ideas yeah 
So way, of course, there are identities that you can't take away from yourself. There are things that are fundamental to, yeah. to you. But the idea is that where you can, you hold the ideas rather than being the ideas. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So I, I, I do Buddhist meditation sometimes. I do comedy. I, I am a feminist activist when I'm doing that activism. Um, but I'm... But if, if I can, then I try to take as much distance as I can from that. I feel like that's really useful advice as well. I, I read about gender, and at one point it was like a list of the, all the genders that we've currently already put a name to and identified. And at one point it said, it doesn't have to, like, you don't always have to be that thing. Because mm. it was about being non-binary and being trans, and some people were like, "You can feel more like one thing or the other." Like there's bi-gender where you sometimes you're more a man and sometimes you're more a woman, and you're allowed the freedom to also come out and then change your mind because that wasn't actually. Well, and it's, it's such a slippery slope because you don't want to say that it's a choice. Like that's not the point. Of course, mm. of course, it's not. But it is, I guess, somewhat of the same thing of. Well, things are fluid, and things do, and you do change, and then experiences will—you'll have experiences that might change the thing. And yeah, I think that's an interesting one. That's a particularly interesting one because those are—that's a—that's something that I think many people can't take out of them themselves. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, exactly. The idea of gender is not an idea; it's an identity. Yeah, and, and it's one you, of those things yeah. that you can't treat as an idea. Yeah. Because if someone attacks that gender. Yeah. You know, if someone attacks women, I feel attacked. If someone attacks yeah. Jews, I feel attacked. And also, if you're if you're not cis, you can feel the strong need to really, really be the gender that you are, or the lack of gender that you have. Yeah. Like, because you need because if you've been struggling your whole life with your gender identity, I, I see how you want to be like, well, fuck it, I am so much a woman right now, or I'm so much like yeah. you have to really claim it, and I totally get that as well. Yeah, but whereas it's if it's possible, and and so this is where I kind of wanted to be careful about things that are possible and are not possible yeah. to step away from. But if we could, as a society, step away from gender and have it be an idea, then everyone is just a person, and then they can address this idea as and when it suits them. Yeah. You know, when I'm walking down the street, I'm not womaning down the street. I'm personing down the street. My identity, uh, my gender identity is not at the forefront of my identity in that moment. For, although f for some people I understand it obviously is, particularly if you're being perceived or if you're in the, in the public eye. Mm. But if I'm on my own walking through a field, my gender identity isn't relevant. Yeah. You know, it's not. Uh, it's not important that... I am behaving womanlyly or in many ways I am atypical. I was brought up with a twin brother. I was a tomboy, all of those things. I don't of, often express huge femininity in my self-performance. So if I can take that idea and, and, and hold it aside and then I can talk about what it is to be a woman without that conversation being, what is it to be me? Which is a much more fraught conversation, a much more emotional conversation if I can say, oh, this is what women are and I don't feel that like in my guts then it's a lot it's a lot easier and it's a lot less fraught and obviously I want to be careful when I say this because I don't want people to feel like I'm saying <coughs> that they should be less emotional about the things that they're emotional about that's not what I'm saying at all but 
kind of in my ideal world, all of these classes and categories and genres mm. and identities will be less important. Yeah. They will be less relevant to the way you are treated, at which point then they're just interesting ideas that we can talk about because they don't affect the way other people treat you in the world. Yeah. You can be like, oh, what is it to be, <coughs> you know, you could have that conversation. What is it to be this gender and what do you mean by that? And yeah. they'll be like, oh, well, actually what I mean by it is this. And you go, well, I don't think that sounds like it makes a lot of sense. And they can go, I understand it probably doesn't make sense to you, but it makes sense to me. And you can go, cool, bye. It won't be... It won't be that fear of life. For yeah, of, yeah, often yeah. for people this is a life and death conversation or it feels like a life and death conversation. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what my point is. No, was. but I feel like it's also the, the letting, <laughs> let you, I guess you let go of, because if, if, if you can say I am a woman or I am a comedian or I mm. am, and that doesn't mean anything that's, you know, if, if there's no pressure around it or if there's no expectation around it then fine but if you do if you're one of the people i think most people do they put some subconsciously put some pressure on the label or the the thing that you've said that you are i am a comedian you know it can or i am religious or i am i i feel like it's a lot about just kind of letting go of the pressure a bit and going because i am is probably the most essential thing you can yeah. possibly say about yourself. Yeah, and if somebody, if I say I'm a comedian and someone goes, I don't like comedy, they're saying, I don't like you. Whereas if I'm saying, I do comedy, and they go, oh, I don't like comedy, I go, what kind of comedy don't you like? Or what don't you like about it? And then it becomes yeah. an interesting, I, I'm a, you know, I, I like having the academic conversations. I like taking things out of myself. Like I think yeah. maybe that's the theme of this podcast. I like looking at things in that way. And obviously that's an illusion to a certain extent. But, for example, I'm here with you in part because I'm a comedian, but I'm not being a comedian now. Mm. If I was trying to be, if I was saying I'm a comedian right now, I'm being a comedian right now, your audience <laughs> would be incredibly disappointed yeah. in me. You know? That's, <laughs> not really, this is what I'm not into. laughing, this is terrible comedy. <laughs> Um, so this has obviously been a lot of what I have wanted to know and stuff. So here's a question that I always ask. What would you most want for me to ask you? Oh. It can be anything. Maybe you already had an idea of what you were going to talk about that you were kind of excited to say, or maybe you just had an experience that you wanted to discuss, or maybe you, you never asked about your favorite color and you've always wanted <laughs> to talk about your favorite color. Or um, I mean... That, that, what what do I want to talk about the most right now is probably uh, my new niece. Ah, <laughs> but I think that's probably not not a podcast conversation. Uh, my twin brother has had a child, and uh, it's pretty amazing. Ah, um, and has also given me a crisis about my comedy in that uh, when this child wakes up, she stretches and farts at the same time. And she refuses to do poo unless she meets you in the eye while she's doing it. <laughs> but she doesn't like it if you laugh at her while she's doing that. And there is nothing that I will ever write that will be as profoundly beautiful and meaningful and hilarious as that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that, I think... Are they in London or are they in Australia? Uh, they, they're in London. I think they're going to head back to Australia for a bit of the maternity leave because it's a lot easier to be in Australia with a small child than it is in London, just putting things on and taking them off again. 
Like in, a ba- in Australia, you can put a baby in a nappy and leave it on the beach. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Denmark's a bit the same, just without the weather. Yeah. Oh, that's so nice, though. Yeah. When is that? When did you become a, an, an aunt? An uh, aunt? Nearly two months ago. Oh. So I'm still, yeah, I'm still in that absolute um, just new person mode. Do you, it's my twin. You know, it's my twin's baby. Do you get the thing? I, f- I find it incredibly... Uh, psychologically inspiring to be around children and babies because they're s- they just do whatever they want to do. Well, and they're, they're, they're not running. stupid. Yeah, like, they don't know anything. Like they don't even know what their hands are. Yeah, but they you can see their minds working. You can see them putting together the world from its most kind of. I think we spend. I think one of the reasons why life passes faster and faster as we get older, um, subjectively speaking, is because we're very good at efficiently uh, routining things, turning things into routine. It's why when you go to a new country, you're more exhausted because you're noticing all the little things that, you know, 80% of your life is going past in the periphery of your vision and you're not registering it and you're not noticing it. It's all getting put into this kind of... We're very efficient machines. Mm. So it is in, it's interesting to think about or to see a baby and realise, oh, yeah, I had to learn what my hands were and what they were meant to do you know I had to learn what a fart was and that it was coming from me and then then the social significance of what it is to do a fart in public like all of that stuff is learned that's amazing that's so amazing I just love the joy I love that they see their hands and they're like oh fuck this is my hand and (laughs) it's like the most amazing thing in the world and I'm I feel like so much of life is restraining is being restrained Uh, restricted Mm. and restraining ourselves you know you're a woman so you have to be quiet and you don't laugh too much and you have to wear your skirt can't be too long and it can't be too short and you have to do this and then there's whatever you get from your family like don't be too loud this is an interesting story and completely irrelevant to your baby story no go on but uh, I was talking to Adam Richard who's a comedian in Australia um And he was talking about how he gives advice to young men comedians, particularly overweight young men because he's on the larger side, about how they should dress on stage. He said they should dress in a button-down shirt and jeans or slacks rather than a sloppy T-shirt because everything you wear on stage is a costume. And you can dress, if you dress neutrally but respectfully, the audience reads that from your thing. And I said, what about women? What's neutral for women? And he said, I'm sorry, and... Unfortunately, the female body is a costume. Everything you bring on stage is a prop. Everything you wear on stage is a costume. And women's bodies are seen as a choice and a choice that says something about themselves. And I think, so for example, like a really obvious example is the fact that um, some women, two or three or four women can wear the same clothing and it will mean something different. If you've got big boobs, that top will make you look slutty and it will make you look like you mean to look slutty, you know? Yeah, and then there's the stereotype of, which might be true in some instances, that the the women will see you as a threat and the men will see you as a sex object. So they won't, and then they can't laugh at you if you look slutty. Yeah, then there's layers and layers and layers and layers and layers on top of that. But just this idea that it's not just what you choose to wear that is a language but that it is perceived to be, for women, a choice to wear this body that they are wearing. 
that was a bit of an in- insight for me. And I, you know, I don't want to complain. I have had an incredible upbringing. I was brought up with a twin brother, and we were brought up as equals. You know, we were both given every opportunity in the world. Um, you know, without very much money, we had you know education and love and freedom and you know everything that you could want. Um, but even so, if I, when we were in a band together, he can get on stage and dress. What he chooses to wear is is a choice, but his body isn't a choice. And I, I, I felt like that was an interesting insight. In, in a sort of sad, sad way, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, I see this is an interesting thing because uh, I guess it's sad, but the way that my brain is wired, the fact that it was like an insight yeah, 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 has yeah, just yeah. given me this like thrill. <laughs> I'm just like, this is amazing. That's, you know, that's a horrifying reality, but it's amazing. Um, I, I think it's because, I feel like that might be because you're better at losing control than I am because I'm like, oh, but then, it's, so I can't choose I, how they, and you're just, oh, hey, everything's in the present and nothing is real. And I'm like, oh, no, man, I, I think I think I've given you the wrong impression of me. I'm way, way uptight <laughs> about very specific things. Okay, that's right. But. So um, I think if we're doing this, the last question I always ask yes. is this. <clears throat> okay, you're in the delivery room and you've just been born. Yes. Okay, and you right now are holding yourself as a baby. I imagine you, I don't think I've interviewed a twin before, so I feel like your twin brother is somewhere over he's, there. He's going to be born he's in been, about five minutes. Oh, okay, so, good. So for those he's five still... minutes when you've just been, good, I'm glad we have some time alone. You're mm. holding teeny, teeny tiny Alice in your arms and she is crying mm-hmm. because there's lights and sounds everywhere. And mm-hmm. that was not what it was like in the womb. And this is very scary. And is this life? Is this what life's going to be? Mm-hmm. You can say something to her about what life is going to be. You can't change anything, like she won't remember this, but this is just for a very particular moment when you can maybe calm her down if that's what you want to do. You could also just let her cry. But you can say something to her because she's looking at you like, what, is this Is this what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? Mm. So what would you say to teeny tiny baby you? That's a really interesting question. I know what my dad said to me, uh, which was he uh, he tapped me below the nose and above the upper lip and said, breathe. <laughs> no, he said, hello, Alice, and then he said, breathe. He tells that story a lot. Um, what, what I would say to myself... Hmm. You'll figure it out, probably. You'll figure it out, yeah. Do you still need to be told that sometimes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yes. Every day. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. Where can people find all your stuff? Um, AliceFraser.com. That's F-R-A-S-E-R. Um, I have a Patreon. I have um, a podcast called Tea with Alice. I have the trilogy. I have a silly podcast called Trollplay. I'm often on the Bugle. Uh, I am on Twitter and Instagram. All of those things. But AliceFraser.com is your kind of one-stop shop. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to that and thank you to Alice Fraser for doing it. She is fantastic. You were right. You were right. If you want to hear uh, Alice Fraser answer some more questions, which she, of course, again, does fantastically. She answers the questions, what's the most embarrassing thing you've ever done? Do you have any kind of practical advice? What's the stupidest thing you did when you were a teenager? Um, Do you have any recommendations 
for people that people should do or go and see or listen to? And also, what is your unpopular opinion? She answers all of those questions on patreon.com. You have to sign up to become a patron if you want to hear her do that. I'll talk about that in a tiny bit. Quickly want to say, go and thank Alice for doing the podcast. Find her on Twitter. Uh, go be her patron. Go to her Patreon. Support her work. Listen to her podcasts. Uh, support the guests because they're so kind that they come on here and uh, and do their stuff so yeah and you're always wonderful at paying it forward and telling people thank you so do that with alice as well you can also find made of human podcast on twitter at partmo p-o-d-m-o-h on facebook as made of human podcast on the website made of human where you can also find t-shirts and other merch now the special content for patrons is a fairly new thing uh, a lot of you have supported it for so long without getting anything in return other than just the kind feeling of being a good person supporting the work that you consume. And I am so grateful for that. So now I'm going to start giving you some extra special bonus content, which is me asking my guests extra questions. If you have ideas or something you want to ask the extra guests, just let me know and I'll shove it in the extra bit. I'll shove it in the extra bit, as, as they say. So go to patreon.com forward slash mopod, M-O-H-P-O-D, and sign up. You can give whatever you feel uh, you can afford. I think the minimum is a dollar per episode, and at the end of the month, it'll automatically just make everything happen for you, and you will get, uh, I think you get an email whenever there's new content released. You can probably also just say no to those emails. I don't know. I think you're always allowed to say no to those emails, but... um. Sorry, I just have to look at my nose in the mirror because it's still bleeding. It's not a good look, is it? Anyways, <sighs> hashtag not all bloody noses, upper noses. So I am very grateful for the people who support the Patreon. And now you get extra special content as well. Every single week, apart from the times when I chat to someone who doesn't want to do the extra questions or who might not have the time to do it. That is the general rule. Now, I want to say, uh, if you give more than $5 per episode, you become a friend of the podcast. And if you become a friend of the podcast, then I will give you a very special uh, shout out at the end of the episode, which is what will happen now. I want to say a massive thank you to the people on this day of recording this intro who are currently supporting the podcast uh, via Patreon. I want to say a massive thank you to Andrea Papillon, Andy Walker, Anya Knoblauk, Autumn Blue Sky, Barry Norton, Caitlin Catposse, Claire McCowlin, Danny Beckett, Daniel Reifersheed, Daphne Fanger, Eleanor, Emma Appleton, Emma Chan, Fiona Richardson, George Pearson, Hannah Keel, Harry Van Dyke, Harry and Lily French, Harry Minute, Helena Thomas, Ida Sugo Larsen, Inger Ellingsen, James Brand, Janie Mahoney, Joe C., Kathy Draxelbauer, Katie Hatfield, Katrina Engelsen, KT, Kirsten Davidson, Queen T, Maury Fraser, Mansour Mir, Marbles Laws, Marac Fraser, Olivia Robson, Paul Swallow, Perpetual Motion, Pierre Fenne, Rachel Hemsley, Rachel Furley, Rachel Phillips, is the three Rachels who are currently leading in the, who has the their name represented the most in the Patreon list, the Rachels. Ragdoll, Robert Knowles, Robin Kappa, Russell Hughes, Sarah Ferreira, Iceseth, Sarah Allett, uh, Sheena Machette Cole, Cecil Fjeldsoon, and Susie Tyler. Now remember, there is a competition going, and the Rachels are still winning. So you have a good odds. You have good odds of competing with them, especially if your name is Emma or 
Harry, because we have a few of those. We have two Emmas and two Harrys. And I feel like there was one more. Mm, Sarah, we have two Sarahs as well. Sarah Ferrer, Agassiz, and Sarah Ellard. So you can um, compete with the Rachels if uh, your name is one of those. Or you can just start a whole new clique. And then uh, I'm sure you can beat them at some point. Now, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next Wednesday. A huge thank you to Dave Pickering, my producer, for producing this episode, to Harriet Brain, the genius, for writing and recording the jingle, and to Linda Brinkhouse for the logo. Speak to you next week. Bye. Oh, pie.